0: Hello, lovelies. Well, today we are going to get to the very heart of the matter, the intelligence of the heart. And I found this great quote from Shwala, supposedly (laughs) on Facebook, about intelligence of the heart, but I cannot find it in the temple in man, which is where it's supposed to be from. But I will read it to you anyway, as it is lovely and it does strike at the intelligence of the heart of the matter. <laughs> awakening is the awakening of the intelligence of the heart. Reason is born with us. If we give it preponderance over cerebral intelligence, over the mental, it will tell us everything. For it is the intelligence of the universe. My best friend in Australia, Laura, Bella, I call her, keeps talking about going out of your mind, that you have to go out of your mind to really see what is going on in the world. And I guess that's what Schwal is talking about here too. Get out of the mental intelligence, what he calls the cerebral intelligence, and into the intelligence of the heart, or what Gary Lockman calls functional consciousness. Now, Gary has a great article on this, and he refers to uh, Bergson's work on functional consciousness as a way to understand a little bit more about what Schwal is going on about. So, we might talk about him for a little bit in the beginning. The typical theory on the origin of consciousness is nested within our materialistic prison paradigm, right? (laughs) Insofar as it sees consciousness as emerging from the evolution of matter, consciousness here is viewed as an epiphenomenon. It is assumed that the brain produces consciousness And this is where Bergson comes in, or Henri, Henri, my French is terrible, so we'll just call him Bergson. (laughs) Oh, but Bergson has an insight in his book, Mind Energy, where he writes, it is sometimes said that in ourselves, consciousness is directly connected with a brain and that we must attribute consciousness to living beings which have a brain, and deny it to those which have none. But it is easy to see the fallacy of such an argument. It would be just as though we should say that because in ourselves digestion is directly connected with a stomach, therefore only living beings with a stomach can digest. We should be entirely wrong for it is not necessary to have a stomach nor even to have a special organ in order to digest. An amoeba digests although it is an almost undifferentiated protoplasmic mass. What is true is that in proportion to the complexity and perfection of an organism there is a division of labor Special organs are assigned special functions, and the faculty of digesting is localized in the stomach, or rather in a general digestive apparatus, which works better because confined to that one function alone. In like manner, consciousness in man is unquestionably connected with the brain, but it by no means follows that a brain is indispensable to consciousness unquote. Bergson's use of analogy here shows us that an organism differentiates and develops in complexity. Organs are created to specialize in certain functions, but the functions exist prior to their localization in organs. Remember that the ear exists because of the sound? So maybe the hearing existed in an undifferentiated part before it became more specialized. So if at the top of the scale of living beings, consciousness is attached to a very complicated nervous center, must we not suppose that it accompanies the nervous system down its whole descent and that when at last the nerve stuff is merged in the yet undifferentiated living matter, consciousness is still there, diffused, confused, but not reduced to nothing. Theoretically then, every living thing might be conscious. In principle, consciousness is co-extensive with life. But if the brain does not produce consciousness, (laughs) then what is its role? Here's where Bergson comes in. Again, Bergson's suggestion is that the function of the brain and nervous system, and sense organs really, is in the main eliminative and not productive. The idea is that the brain, rather than producing consciousness, acts as some sort of filter of consciousness. Am I hearing reality tunnel again? Raw, naked reality in its immensity and fullness would leave unfiltered consciousness utterly overwhelmed, awestruck and confused. So the brain creates barriers between our conscious awareness and all that is going on outside of that awareness in order for us to be able to make sense of the world and to act in it. That is what gives us the ability to focus. Now, I know I gave you one example last week, but let me give you a kind of more famous scientific study, and that is, I'm sure you've seen it, the famous Invisible Gorilla Experiment. The psychological experiment is to watch a video of two groups of people passing basketballs to each other. And it's on YouTube and you can see it, right? And you have to count how many times one of the groups passes the ball. But while doing this, most people completely fail to see a person dressed up in a gorilla costume who blatantly walks across the set and even stops halfway to wave at the camera. Now I'm going to fully include myself as one of those people. And I was blown away when I realized that I did not see that damn gorilla. And I'm sure if you've seen it, you were the same. But we miss it for a simple reason. The point of this experiment is to show that our perception is constrained by our motivations. In other words, our goals in any given situation limits our awareness by blocking out all that is irrelevant to that goal. To apply this principle on the macro, then, what we must realize is that humans, having evolved chiefly to survive, are almost always only aware of reality insofar as it is essential to our survival. That is our meta-motivation. Thus our dominant and constant perceptual filter is that of utility for survival. We have evolved to see reality not as it actually is, but as we need it to see it in order to survive. That means we see reality as not a reality in itself, but as a reality in which we can best survive. We see a human reality, not a reality that is a reality in itself. However, that's not always the case, right? We have mystical experiences. In a way, you could say these mystical experiences are when we actually break out of this human constructed reality and we move into the fullness of reality, these experiences are called religious or mystical because they penetrate past the shroud and they bring us into the realm of the transcendent. One of the best examples of that is Jill Bolte taylor And I'm sure we've all watched her TED Talk where she had a stroke and one of her hemispheres went offline. And because she was a brain scientist, right, she was able to Observe what was happening to her perception. And if you haven't seen it, I'll put the link below because it is just absolutely amazing. And as a scientist, she really does describe her experience as transcendent. So it's a great example of what we're talking about here, or what Bergson was talking about. So again, Bergson's view of consciousness intuitively makes sense to those who have had these kind of experiences. These experiences occur when the perceptual barriers constructed by the brain break down and the floodgates of consciousness are opened. The infiniteness of reality to which we are usually unaware becomes overwhelmingly but unavoidably apparent. There is so much data pouring in to the perceptual system that all one can truly do is stand in awe. (laughs) Now, our materialistic age is really skeptical about the credibility of such experiences. We are inclined to insist that these experiences are nothing more than illusions created by the brain. But those who have had these experiences ardently deny that they're false. In fact, they will tell you that they're even more real than our everyday reality. But it kind of comes back to the idea of consciousness, right? So what is consciousness? And since we're looking at Schwala, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read you um, again from the Temple Inman on what Schwala says about consciousness. Okay. If a cause origin of the universe is admitted, It is of necessity unique. However, if reason imposes on us the idea of an indivisible, that is, quantity-less unity, the idea of this unity eludes our point of view as creatures forming part of this universe, a consequence of the unique cause. The unity exists for us only if comparison is possible. But comparison signifies consciousness and duality. Thus, creation is accomplished entirely between the numbers 1 and 2. And duality is the basic characteristic of the created universe. This duality is the principle of sexuality. Duality implies comparison with a series of phenomena which produces cerebral consciousness. Unity creates by looking at itself. It is the fallen angel of the Judaic Christian tradition and also the Adamic era in the genesis of Moses. We may call this unity God or unpolarized energy in that this unity is indivisible and God, the creator of polarized energy, insofar as it is unity, conscious of itself. Therefore, the universe is only consciousness and presents only an evolution of consciousness from beginning to end, which is the return to its cause. The aim of every initiatory religion is to teach the way that leads to this, the ultimate merging. Cerebral consciousness, which is peculiar to the animal kingdom and the human animal, requires the faculty of registering notions that are only acts of comparison, and this faculty is located in the cerebral cortex and the double cerebral lobes. On the other hand, understanding, intellect or reason, he's calling it, or functional consciousness as Bergson calls it, just so we know we're talking about the same thing because they use lots of different terms to describe the thing. So let's go back. On the other hand, understanding, intellect or reason is the faculty of synthesis in the coordination of ideas and is functionally centered in the pituitary and pineal bodies hypophysis and epiphysis. This is what the ancients called the intelligence of the heart because its impulse is manifested through the solar plexus, the sympathetic nerve, the emptive center, and its direct physical reactions upon the heart. So, again some big ideas. And honestly, one of my favorite authors <laughs> is Gary Lochman. And Gary has an article that really illuminates this idea and actually a lot of Shuala's life. So I'll pop that in the comments as well. But as part of that article, um, Gary has a section on functional consciousness, this consciousness that we're talking about. So let me read that to you as I think this is a way great way to top off these ideas for today. So Gary Lockman says, Shwala believed Luxor was a kind of living organism, a colossal compendium of esoteric truth, whose every detail from its total design down to its very materials, voiced one central revelation, that conscious man was the goal of cosmic evolution. Quote, Each individual type in nature is a stage in the cosmic embryology which culminates in man. Quote, Different species, Schwaler believed, developed various functions, what the Egyptians called netters, and we translate as gods, which have their apotheosis and integration in conscious man. The essence of Schwaler's evolutionism has to do with what he calls functional consciousness, as an idea we can benefit from understanding regardless of our opinion. And although Schwaller developed his ideas about functional consciousness in an Egyptian context, that context is ultimately not necessary. The essence of those ideas go back to Bergson and intuition, Needless to say, Schwala took this basic insight and with his Egyptian revelation developed an original, powerful, and imaginatively thrilling symbolic system. Functional consciousness is a way of knowing reality from the inside. Schwala believed ancient Egypt was based on this inner knowing, very unlike our own outer oriented one. The ancients, he argued, were aware of the limitations of purely cerebral consciousness, the set mind that granulates experience into fragments of time and space, and is behind our increasing abuse of nature and of each other. Granulated experience produces our familiar world of disconnected things, each a kind of island reality. From this perspective, when I look at the world, I see a foreign, alien landscape, which I can only know by taking it apart and analysing it. As the poet Wordsworth wrote, we murder to dissect. But as Schwaller wrote in Nature Word, the universe is wholly activity. There is another way of knowing, one very similar to Taoist forms of perception, which can heal the ruptures of cerebral consciousness without recourse to dubious ideas of elites or theocracies. In a section called The Way, Schwala advises us to leave all dialectic behind and follow the path of the powers. Poetically, he continues by calling us onto Tumble with the rock which falls from the mountain. Seek light and rejoice with the rosebud about to open. Labor with the parsimonious ant and gather honey with the bee. Expand in space with the ripening fruit. All of those injunctions are classic examples of the kind of knowing from the inside that Bergson had in mind in his talk on intuition. In this way, we participate with the world rather than hold it at arm's length, objectifying it as modern science is prone to do. With recent developments in genetics, that objectification is now dangerously focused on ourselves. As Schwaler said, the intelligence of the heart may be difficult to acquire, but it is something we and the whole world can benefit from by experiencing in the long run. I really love this idea of gathering honey with the bee. I particularly like becoming a wave in the ocean. And I've changed my schedule so much (laughs) that I really like the sunlight because I awaken just before the sunrise and I drop into bed at the sunset, making me not very much fun in the evening, I must say. But I think there is very much something here if we want to understand that pharaonic consciousness, if we want to see through the eyes of the ancient Egyptians, and if we want to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear their message, and ultimately at the end of the day, if we want to have more meaning. Because in my experience, Trying this just a little bit, going to the forest, for goodness sakes, and trying this just a little bit, changes everything. (laughs) Absolutely everything, my lovelies. Hello, lovelies. I am so excited to announce the release of our new film called Hecker. Heka looks at the magic of ancient Egypt and how that pertains to the story of ancient Egypt and fills in a whole new perspective that we have been missing collectively for hundreds of years. It features Gordon White, Chance Gardner, Joseph Patrick Farrell, Lon Milo Duquette, Tobias Churton, Graham Hancock, of course, the fabulous John Anthony West, Rupert Sheldrake, Stephen Skinner, Thomas Sheridan, Peter Mark Adams, Thomas Joseph Brown, Aton Veggie, Mog Morton, Bernardo Catstrop, Shona Holm, Mark Passio, John, Siraki, and the goddess Joanna Kujawa.